and welcome to another edition of Kaleidoscope. This is Magda Zenon, recording from downtown Nicosia, and with me, via Zoom, I have Elizabeth Neuclair from Orland. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you very much. Elizabeth, you are a Swedish-born Finn who is an independent politician and jurist in the autonomous region of Orland, Orland and you're also a member of the the Nordic Women Mediators Network. Tell yes. me a little about let, tell me a little bit about Orland because I think the thing that drew me to you, especially when we met in Ethiopia last month, is that you live in a region that is quite unique in its status. Absolutely, I, I'm I'm born in Sweden, but I'm half Norwegian. I'm born right at the border, the Swedish Norwegian border. My mother was Norwegian and my father Swedish. And I live in this Åland Island where my husband comes from. So I'm an Orlander and I have been a member of the Finnish parliament. I'm not really a politician any longer. And I was not a politician before that. I've been a civil servant. Uh, I'm a lawyer and I've been working with the government here and with the parliament here and then with the UN during the war in former Yugoslavia. So that is uh, my background. I have a Swedish citizenship, I have a Finnish citizenship, and I have the right of domicile, which is something special for the Orland Islands. It's not a citizenship, but it's an, a special right that you can uh, achieve if you've been living here for five years and some other prerequisites. You have to speak Swedish. Okay. And this is where we can start the ball rolling because your experience lies in power sharing in conflict areas and minority-majority relations from a, from a legal and political point of view because you live in a region that is autonomous yet connected to Finland. Yes. Connected, if, um, connected because you have representation in the Finnish parliament, do you not? One representative, yes. Okay. okay, so tell us a little bit about Orland to put the listeners into the picture. Because I, as I said, I read up on you and I was fascinated, and I can see why this is quite unique and why you have why you have the expertise. Tell us a brief history. Finland and the Orland Islands belonged to Sweden until 1809, when they were lost in a war and became part of Russia. At the time of the Russian Revolution and the First World War, uh, the inhabitants of Finland wanted to declare independence, which they did in uh, 1917, the 6th of December 1917. The people of the Orland Islands being entirely Swedish by culture and language. And there's also a Swedish-speaking population in Finland. Finland is, according to the constitution, a bilingual country. Mm. But the population in the Orland Islands, they didn't know what would happen to them. This was before the independence. Would uh, they become part of Soviet Union, where they would only speak Russian? Would they become part of Finland, where they would, an independent state, where they would only speak Finnish? Now we know the result, but they didn't know. So Mm -hmm. they decided to ask for reunification with Sweden. Okay. So they went to, to Sweden to speak to the to the government, to the prime minister, etc., and asked for reunification. Now, this was a very difficult time. 
so they didn't, uh, they said they were very welcoming and positive in Stockholm, but they didn't really make a big fuss out of it in the difficult time that took place after the First World War. So Finland declared independence in 1917, and then they were determined to keep these islands. It was, of course, uh, to rip away a part of a country that has recently been uh, independent is not a good idea, uh, first of all. And of course, for the Swedish-speaking population in Finland, it was very, very important that the Åland Islands with this uh, Swedish population would remain part of Finland. Okay. So uh, the Finland, um, that was the Prime Minister and the Minister of Justice and the Minister of Defence, came to the Åland Islands and presented an autonomy act. They wanted that the Olanders should have autonomy, but the Olanders didn't want to have any autonomy. They wanted to be part of Sweden. So they refused to accept this proposal. And um, they were then two of the leaders uh, were arrested and uh, went to prison in Finland. They were later on pardoned without having asked for pardon. And they came back home as heroes, of course. <laughs> of but uh, this uh, sparkled a conflict between Sweden and Finland. So Sweden sent a diplomatic note to Finland and protested against the fact that they had arrested the leaders. I'm telling you this little detail because it's very important in the history. The uh, question of the Åland Islands was uh, brought up in the peace negotiations in Paris after the First World War, but it was never settled because they said it was a question of security, so it should go to the League of Nations, uh, which was the organization, as you know, before the United Nations. Mm -hmm. uh, Britain brought it there, and they were only dealing with international conflicts. So they had to ponder on this and ask themselves if it was, if it was a, an international conflict. And they decided, yes, it was an international conflict because Sweden had protested against in this diplomatic note. And they had also retrieved the ambassador had uh, been sent back uh, uh, to Stockholm. So it was an international conflict. And that was uh, the reason why it was handled by the League of Nations. This is unique because um, in most cases there has to be war, bloody conflicts, etc. before an international uh, organization take care of it. And um, most states are against the involvement of international um, troops or international involvement. Mm -hmm. There has to be uh, weapons and and uh, fights and battles and you know this yes better than I do. So this was unique. The Olin question was in the spotlight of the international uh, community without having had um, uh, a conflict been part of the war. Yes. And then the League of Nations in 220 declared Orland an autonomous demilitarized region. Uh, they this was it was decided in 2020 uh, 1921. Yeah. They uh, there were a lot of investigations and research, and there were lawyers, and there were of course 
strategic military people, etc., involved because there were two interests. Of course, Sweden wanted to have the islands as that was the will of the population. And of course, Finland was determined to keep the islands. So Finland passed also a law, their constitution, according to their constitution, uh, Finland is a bilingual country. And this was, of course, to show the world that Finland is a civilized country that could accommodate these islands. So uh, the, there was uh, there was a lot of investigation etc., okay. before the decision was made. And the decision was made in June 21. And then uh, the two parties, Sweden and Finland, they were given three days to decide whether they accepted the solution or not. And the suggested solution was that Ireland should belong to Finland, but it should be uh, given autonomy. And as it was said and promised by Finland, as extensive as is ever possible without becoming an independent state. Okay. Now, uh, to come to- and, and it would be, and Swedish would be the official language. Swedish would be the official language and neither the state nor the region should finance schools in any other in any other schools than schools where the uh, tuition language was English uh, Swedish. Swedish. This does of course not mean that it's forbidden with Finnish schools. Uh, but there are no Finnish schools. If okay. Finnish is taught like a foreign language, like English or, or anything else, but there are no Finnish schools. And it was decided that the language uh, of communication between the state and the region should uh, only be in, in Swedish. Okay. So that way they kept both identities. They kept everyone happy. They kept the language and the identity and they kept the connection to Finland. Well, we used to say that there were three losers or there were three winners because uh, Finland got the islands uh, as they wanted. The Sweden got the security, and I'll come back to that, as they wanted. And Holland uh, uh, got the Swedish language, uh, preservation of the Swedish language as they wanted. Or you can put it the other way. Finland did not get the islands without uh, restrictions oh. and uh, Sweden did not get the islands and the Orlanders did not become part of Sweden as they wanted. This is... It depends on how you decide to frame some. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> but when you come to the military, uh, there was a, a war here in 1854, the uh, first Crimean War, where Russia lost a battle between, um, the, on the other side was the French and British troops, and uh, they didn't lose the islands, but they had to uh, promise in an agreement uh, in Paris to never fortify the islands anymore. They had started to fortify them with a, a huge a fortress that was then destroyed. Uh, and in 1921, it was, um, this Agreed. was up to discussion again about the demilitarization and uh, Russia, Soviet Union was not invited. They were not members of the League of Nations. So they didn't participate in the negotiations mm. in Geneva. There was a special conference in the autumn after the decision was made in June. 
where it was decided that the Orland Islands should continue to be demilitarized, but they should also be neutralized because it is impossible to defend a demilitarized area where there were no fortifications. Now, this is very often a misunderstanding. People think that neutralization has something to do with neutrality, uh, but it is not, it has nothing to do with neutrality. Uh, Orland is no longer neutral since Finland became a member of NATO, uh, but still neutralized, meaning that all the involved parties has agreed that no war actions should take place in the Orland Islands in, in case of a war. And this is something that I'm very much working on because in peacetime, Orland is demilitarized. In wartime, it is neutralized. But now there is a tendency to go from demilitarization to militarization. We see a lot of this, but the the leading, the, the president of Finland and most of the uh, presidential candidates, they see the difference. But this is, it is very, very difficult. Finland, as well as the Orland Islands, have to, in every possible international context, bring up the fact that Orland is neutralized to have diplomatic um, security or safety for this. That, that's a very, I'm glad you explained that in such detail because I was also going into the commonly misunderstanding of what neutral meant and what demilitarization meant. It's very interesting that it's neutral because it needs to be kept safe. Yes. You can't have more concern. Okay, that's very interesting. Tell me what, as an autonomous region, what connects it to Finland? In what way is it? What what autonomous competencies does it have as a region? What are the things it does not need approval from from the Finnish government? It was decided in Geneva that there will be two jurisdictions in Finland, two parliaments, and they would be sort of on an equal basis. It's not like one parliament is above the other one. But they are, uh, leg their legislative competence is in different areas. So when um, if Orland has the competence in a certain area and no laws, they haven't legislated, it doesn't mean that the Finnish laws apply. If it's empty, it's empty. So this was decided in Geneva, and it is a very complicated, sophisticated, I would say, system of how to determine what belongs to Orland and what belongs to Finland. So it's not a question of the the, uh, the uh, it's not a question of decentralization or delegation or what is used in a British context devolution. It's a question of division of power. The okay. power was divided between the two parliaments, between the two jurisdictions, already in 1921 in Geneva. And if this should be altered, which happens, the uh, it is laid down in the Autonomy Act of Orland. The Autonomy Act of Orland is not a constitution, but it is passed 
in the same way as the constitution of Finland, or mm -hmm. I would even claim it's stronger because on top of that, it also has to be passed by the Orland parliament. Okay. In a special majority vote. So it's very, very strong. And you could really say that this is like a bilateral agreement. Finland cannot change the Autonomy Act without the consent of the Orland Islands, and neither can Orland change it. Okay. I mean, it's really, I'm, I'm, as I said, I read a bit on this before we, I came to this interview, and the one thing that did stick out is owning of property. Yes. And you spoke about it earlier, about you have domicile in Orland, which does give you the right to own property or not. Yes, this uh, there were restrictions already in 1921 on buying real estate, carrying out business, and voting. Now, uh, in later on in the 1970s, it was decided that this should be encompassed in something called the right of domicile. Okay. If you have the right of domicile, which you have, for example, if you're born in the Orland Islands with both the parents or the parents from Orland Islands, I'm not going to go into this details, yeah, or you can, you can get it after you've been living here for five years. Uh, if you have the right of domicile, then you can freely buy real estate, you can freely carry out business, and you can vote in the elections to the parliament. If you do not have the right of domicile, you can still buy uh, real estate, you can still carry out business, but then you need a special permission. Okay. Uh, you can never get a special permission to vote in the parliamentary election, but uh, for carrying out business and, and buying real estate, you can. So, okay, this, yes. this actually reminds me of apartheid South Africa, when if you were not Caucasian and you wanted to open a business in the city, you could do so provided you had a Caucasian partner. Yeah, you know, this is not, uh, the idea is... Uh, not... it's just It just came to mind that it's a... Absolutely. Mm -hmm. uh, and this has to be explained over and over because it is not... You, you very often hear that uh, people can't, there are all sorts of narratives about this, you know, like you can't move to the Orland Islands if you can't speak Swedish. Of course, that's complete nonsense. Anyone can move here. It is not, uh, the, the idea is not to stop people from moving to the Orland Islands. And you can... If you get a job, you can rent an apartment and you can move uh, freely here. But there are some restrictions. And the idea in 1921 was that as at that time, it was around 20,000 inhabitants. Now it's uh, a bit more than 30,000 inhabitants. So okay. it's, a, it's a, an island uh, where people are moving. Uh, you could easily at that time in 1921, you could have moved in, as the example is, uh, moved in 1,000 Finnish workers, started uh, industry. They could have, uh, um, you know, really altered the whole linguistic ethnic composition. And this was a major, uh, because it is so small population. Mm -hmm. 
So because of that, it was considered as these restrictions were reasonable. And these restrictions remain when Finland and all enjoyed the EU. Yes. And okay. then there was, of course, this is against uh, the European, the, the ideas of the European Union. Oh, the yeah, so uh, that there is a special protocol saying Ireland can still have these restrictions uh, and uh, for buying real estate and for carrying out business because, uh, and the reason uh, the European Union used was that so many of the member states of the European Union had been members of the League of Nations at that time, so they were bound by the decision from 1921 it couldn't be uh, altered so there but i uh, to give you two examples if you uh, would get a, a job here and uh, you would move here with your family uh, and uh, the the kids would start school here and it is obvious that you are not moving to the Orland yeah. Island because of speculation to try to make a fortune out of some land. You will get the right to permission to buy a house okay. uh, where the family can live, etc. Uh, and as I said, after five years, you can get the right to domicile. But if you would live in Cyprus, for example, and you would like to buy an island, here, you know, we have 6,500 of them. Uh, and you would buy want to buy an island uh, to uh, build some uh, huts for tourist business. You would definitely not get the property. Okay. Okay. Um, and to put everything also in perspective, Orland has its own flag. Yes. But your currency is euros. Is Europe? Yes. Okay. Yes. Do you? But on certain occasions, you can accept the Swedish krona. Uh, of course. I mean, that's this is a tourist island. You know, that's the same uh, in all tourist okay. islands. That it's it's very often that you can use. And as I say, I I'm born with uh, two currencies in my purse. <laughs> I was born at the Swedish-Norwegian border, and we always had, and I still have both Swedish and Norwegian crowns in my in my purse, and and now we also have euro. Tell me when you moved for your job to the former Yugoslavia in the nineties. In nineteen ninety-three, just before just when the conflict broke out. Was it? No, yes. the conflict broke out in 1992. Yes, the year before. It was the year before. Mm -hmm. um, you came in and this... Did you bring these ideas to the table? Because the question of majorities and minorities is an issue that is usually the biggest problem when there's a conflict of balancing out the rights of the minority against the rights of the majority. Yes, I was brought... Uh... I was asked to join because of my experience from the Orland Islands, because, you know, I'm, I've am i been a lawyer, as I said, in the government and in the parliament, and it is inevitable not to be, uh, if you don't say no, and I uh, say yes to everything. So um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's impossible not to be dragged into these questions. 
because they are coming from all over the world to study the Olin autonomy. And uh, we are invited everywhere and there are arranged seminars, etc. So I had already been uh, working on these questions for mm -hmm. a long time when I was asked by the UN to join um, to join uh, this team. mission. Mm -hmm. Unprofores was the first mission. Okay, and how was how was this received? Was this received the division of um, competencies? Did it seem like a good idea in the former Yugoslavia? Was it readily oh. accepted or was it dismissed immediately? Afterwards, it seemed to be a very good idea. I'm, I'm very often when I go down there, which I still do, I meet people saying, why didn't we listen to you? But of course, it was a lot of prestige. It was a war and it is... Uh, it's easy, of course, to say they should have done it this or that way afterwards. Um, and you, sorry was... to interrupt, and you also went at the height of the conflict. Yes. And at the height of the conflict, no one's thinking the big picture. Everyone's in panic, exactly. um, like a, I don't know what it's called in English, in their own uh, boxes. No one's thinking of the big picture. How's this going to look going forward? Sorry, I interrupted. Exactly. So, uh, but you know, no one can admit that they are interested, even if they are interested. I mean, most, uh, I don't know if it's right to say most, but many uh, interlocutors that I've had are, of course, only interested in independence. You can speak about Kosovo, of course, Kosovo et cetera, uh, Azavad, uh, et cetera. Uh, Western Sahara, uh, they're only interested in, in independence. Uh, but uh, when I was, to go back to Yugoslavia, when I was there, I saw too that I had as much uh, material as possible translated to the local language. Uh, the Autonomy Act of all and all sorts of reports, etc., to try to explain to them. And they were, uh, of course, not interested. But when I had finished my speech, they used to say, did you say that you had some material in, <laughs> in Serbo-Croatian or in mm -hmm. Serbian or in Croatian? And I said, yes, you can take, you can take it. So you obviously uh, tickled something in their brains that they wanted oh, to understand, yes. yes. Oh, yes, for sure. But it's very difficult. Um, for people to admit that they are interested when they only have one thing on the agenda, and that is independence. And I mean, I've also been to places where they've said, here we have nothing to share. I used to uh, speak about power sharing because power sharing is much more neutral than um, autonomy. And uh, But I've been to places where they say, we have nothing to share. And um, a misconstrued, uh, understa misconstrued understanding of what sharing actually means. Yeah, but we know that. Yeah, uh, but uh, the the word autonomy uh, means different things in in maybe in British vocabulary uh, and in in French. I would say it's almost independence. Mm. In uh, 
former Soviet Union uh, states, it is uh, not acceptable with autonomy because that is the slippery slope down <laughs> to independence. Okay. And in a Chinese context, it is not acceptable because there it means nothing. I mean, nothing according to the people who would like to have some sort of uh, autonomy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, you, uh, but that's true because depending what language you're using, the word autonomy in most words in different languages have different nuances. You all, were also called it to consult in Cyprus, were you not? Yes, uh, when it comes to Cyprus, that was uh, at the accession to the European Union. Okay. Because then uh, all possibilities for Cyprus was, of course... Uh, Discussed. Uh, yeah. So I was very, very many talks, though I've never been to Cyprus. I would love to come there. Well, you've got to come. We need to have this discussion in, in part, uh, a bigger discussion. How was it received? Because... Between you and me, and this is not between you and me because people are listening, but between you and me, biggest mistake of the EU and for Cyprus was allowing Cyprus to join with a status adjoined, with a part of the island not adhering to the key communitaire, being unrecognized, being in limbo. It doesn't seem like a good idea to me as a civilian. How did they under how was it received? by the Cypriots, your conversations of autonomy in the way Orland has autonomy? Um, well, I'm, I don't think that we discussed uh, uh, the idea of autonomy for uh, in Cyprus. It was more our relation with the European Union uh, that was discussed and that was compared and etc. more than... So the relationship of Cyprus to the EU. Yes. And how was that, how did they foresee, and I'm not sure if you can ask this, but maybe you can, how did they foresee the North communicating well, with the EU? Well, I think that, now it's a long time ago, and uh, maybe, uh, and I'm not in, I'm not a specialist, definitely not a specialist on, on Cyprus, but I was uh, in very many talks, and I got more the impression that the Orland Islands would maybe have been, uh, the Orland solution would maybe have been in relation to the European Union uh, as for the north of Cyprus. Because, I mean, the more I listen to what you're saying and the more I'm beginning to understand the status of the region of Orland, it sounds like the perfect solution. Because there is an independence, okay? There is an autonomy in the way that I am, can make decisions on my own, but there is a connection. Oh, yes. And... Uh... You know, there's, a, of course, a special reason why it has been studied more than maybe any other autonomous, uh, autonomy arrangements. And that is, first of all, because it was, uh, as I said, it was so carefully investigated the possibility with the committees and the commissions and lawyers and military people, etc. 
And that was because it was one of the first, maybe the first, they didn't have any models. They couldn't yes. copy any anything and say, oh, let's do it this way. That's the way they did it there and there. So uh, that is uh, why it is, uh, there are many people are very interested in, in Orland, you know, the Orland solution, and it's been more studied than, than anything else. Uh, I think that probably but, was easier to solve, and I'm using the word easier loosely, because Europe had just come out of a world war. Okay. Yes. And it was know, one of the it was one of the first situations. So I think there was probably a real intent on finding a solution. Yes, and there are many uh, many reasons. I mean, we who have been around the world talking about this, we've all met people saying, I did it in former Yugoslavia, for example, saying, oh, we wouldn't mind being an autonomous part of Finland either. You know, like Finland is a civilized, rich Nordic country. But, and that is something that I encountered when I come to Yugos came to Yugoslavia during the war. They were saying, uh, because they had done research and knew everything about my background. And they said, what do you know about bloody wars and conflict? You come from the rich and civilized uh, Nordic countries, Nordic region. So I then had to put it in a different way. I used to say that Finland was not a civilized rich country or a rich country in 1917 at its independence. And there was a bloody civil war in Finland where the second town, I used this example in Yugoslavia, where the second town, the city in Finland, Tampere, was leveled like Vukovar. And this, the civil war in Finland was not about the Orland question, but it was with the same people in the same spirit, in the same time that Orland should establish its autonomy. So it was, it's not, it was not a quick fix and, and easy because the decision in Geneva was against the will of the people. And that is what is most interesting. They, there was one of the leaders in his biography says that he's quoted saying, it was the bitterest day of my life when the decision about autonomy and belonging to Finland was made. But it is strange and, that it was made against the will of the people of Orland. Yeah, because, and exactly. And that's of course what people are, are asking how come how could they how could this be like that why did, did they decide that they should belong to Finland when they were Swedes and wanted to be a uh, part of Sweden but you know that it's very to rip away a part of a country in the case of Finland that had fought the war heroic war against the Bolsheviks and should they then be punished by ripping away a part of the country? No. No. There are always, you know, different reasons for different. And of course, you can say that, uh, I used to say that Sweden is the ideal kin state. Why? Because, uh, because I have been asked uh, 
many times around the world in different contexts. If you would aim at independence in the Åland Islands, would Sweden then support you? Like, I mean, when the Serbs in Croatia wanted uh, an independent state in Croatia, uh, hoping for support from Milosevic and having maybe support from Milosevic for some time, etc. Would Sweden support uh, an independence movement in the Olden Islands? And, you know, we would laugh. That's ridiculous. <laughs> of course, Sweden would never support an independence movement in the Olden Islands. So that Sweden has accepted the decision. But to uh, me, it's a carry on, sorry. No, they, they had three days. And, but the interesting thing from a legal point of view is that uh, the question is, is, uh, is Sweden a guarantor for uh, the Åland autonomy? And this question has been put, I think, three times to foreign ministers in, in the parliament in Sweden. And the answer is no, we are not legally bound by the decision because and the reason why is that because the decision was never published in the law gazette in sweden so why so, so, it, so you're why saying was, to me that sweden legally guarantees the autonomy not legally the no they say no we are not legally bound by the decision because we didn't publish the decision in the law gazette and why didn't they uh, publish it. Well, why would they publish uh, a case that they had lost, first of all, when they came home? Secondly, there were no presidencies. There has been no such decisions by uh, international okay. uh, organizations. So Sweden didn't publish it, so Sweden are not legally bound. But the next, there are three parts of this answer. The second part of the answer is, uh, but we are um, morally and uh, politically bound by the decision. And the third part of the answer is, but Finland is doing fine. Okay. But that's what I said to you. It's, there's good intent. There was intent to find a solution. Maybe a better decision for Sweden. But there was intent to find a solution. Yes. And you do know that Cyprus is one of, I think we are the only country that I know whose independence treaty was signed by three guarantors. That's our biggest problem. Mm. Greece, Turkey, and the UK. But yes. that's another conversation. Um, I do think we need to bring this conversation to the table because that Cyprus is presently facing a deadlock, not a deadlock, it's dead. The, there's no conversation about a peace process. You've got uh, two leaders in both communities. The one is a comedian PR specialist and the other one is a puppet of Turkey. And I think even the people are lost. So maybe we need to bring something new to the table because you're not, whatever you do, it's not going to be copy-paste. You're going to take no, a model and see how you're... You can adapt it in a way that everyone is protected and it's a win-win situation. Yes, there are so many such conflicts now uh, in, 
in different in Africa, for example, Western Sahara, uh, the Azawad. Uh, we have, of course, the question of Palestine, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so it there there are so many different uh, such conflicts, and they are linked and interlinked to each other, and uh, there are. But there are solutions for everything if there if there is a will. But very often there is no will. It's As got I to said, be a good intent. Yeah, I followed, of course, the uh, Cyprus question very closely when the Annan plan was uh, presented. As Kofi Annan was my boss in in former Yugoslavia, and uh, of course because I had been interviewed about the. Um, the EU process and about Cyprus. So, so I followed this uh, Kofi Annan, the Annan plan, and it was a, a big loss. It was uh, the golden egg. It was the window of opportunity that was lost. But as the Annan plan was lost, so was Kranzmontana lost. Mm. But opportunities that to me shows some um, lack of good intent, and also uh, uh, I don't think we really have a civil society. Firstly, our peace process is messed up because it's a bot, it's top-down. Whatever happens at the bottom, the negotiator goes into the negotiating room and he has the final word. He's accountable to no one and no one knows what he's going to do. Mm. Okay. And... Um, so even no matter how active you are, we've got to find a way to change these checks and balances because we've got to, there's got to be a way that the will of the people, there's got to be a connection from track one, track three to track one. Yes. Because a lot is happening on the ground. Both communities are fairly, fairly active. The Turkish Cypriot a little bit more because they have more to lose. So they step out of and demonstrate a lot louder and more frequently. But we cannot carry on like this. We cannot no. carry on like this. No. I mean, I just a little detail. The other day, um, one of the members from the Mediterranean Women Mediates Network, the Palestinian member, was going to speak at an event in the north. Now, for me to get to the north, I don't drive in the north, okay? I usually get picked up or someone else has got a car. So for me to get to this place in the north, I needed to catch a taxi, and then I didn't know how would I catch what how if I could find a taxi to bring me back. Now, if I was living in a normal country, I would have driven there and left when I wanted. This should not be happening in such a small space with we with such a small population. So I never went because the logistics were just too complicated. Yes, I and mean were, this is like this is like. In former Yugoslavia, I've experienced all this, of course. And at that time, you couldn't, there were no mobile phones and you had to call via satellite, via the UN and New York. And I don't know what to call. Uh, no, but you do hours. know, you do know that my mobile telephone doesn't work in the north. No, I'm sure it doesn't. And there's a different, uh, what do you call them? The the receivers, the poles, because I'm the sure. Turkish one is in the north. It doesn't, I, if I get beyond a certain distance from the checkpoints, the green line, got no telephone. 
<laughs> no, I, I mean, I'm sure I, I have so much experience of this from my time in Yugoslavia. You know, in when I lived in late in Zagreb, they went over the border to to Slovenia to be able to call their relatives in in Bosnia or in Serbia or wherever. So there were long queues at the phone boxes, which they had at that time. I mean, they didn't even have a mobile. It was in Marsat when we should satellite, when we should call Sarajevo, etc. I have so much experience of this. I'm not at all surprised. But it's bizarre for people that don't live the situation or haven't lived similar. They think, well, so you've got a green line and we have checkpoints, but we by no way have checkpoints like the Palestinians. But you still have a checkpoint. Yeah, you still have got to go through the process of showing first the Greek Supreme Authorities and then to the Turkish Supreme Authorities showing a document. You yeah. can't always take your car through it because not all the checkpoints are for some are just for pedestrians. Yeah. All the in the south, you've got signage in Greek and English. In the north, most of it's in Turkish. So you go to the north, and unless you know the Turkish name of where you're going, you lost. Yeah, and vice versa. So it's really bizarre. Especially considering that this is a conflict zone that is not a conflict. I'm safe. I've got a roof. There's no bombs dropping down. I've got water, food, and whatever. But this bizarreness of living, this disconnect. So yeah. I think we need to bring, maybe we need to start more conversations. I like I like this idea of the, the way the Orland region was turned into an autonomous region, yet part of a bigger picture. No, it's always, you know, dialogue. That's the only possibility. I mean, to declare independence is very difficult, I'm sure, to establish an independence state, I'm sure. I haven't been involved in that. But uh, to uh, have autonomy is also, is a struggle every day. And um, um, it, there is a saying that autonomy autonomy is reluctantly uh, given and ungratefully received. <laughs> That's and, a good uh, one. That, that is absolutely, I mean, we are fighting every day with Finland, but we are fighting at the negotiator's table in a civilized way. Can I just ask you one last question? Are the economies connected? The economy? Yes. Yeah, of course. Of course, and that's of course the the big debate. Uh, uh, are we, um, you know, uh, paying more than than what is returned? We don't have our uh, own taxation, but this is this is a, a lesson for an hour. In the uh, to in short, in nineteen twenty one, it was decided that uh, Orland should have. Uh, taxes should uh, Levi taxes um, that was uh, enough for the administration. It turned out that it wasn't at all. It was something called the land taxes. It it didn't give mm -hmm. that result at mm -hmm. all. So at the second autonomy act in 1953, Orland was in deep debt, and they had to accept the new autonomy act though they then, then lost the international guarantees because Orland could earlier um, 
go to the League of Nations or even the uh, the court in The Hague. Uh, and this we lost in 1953, but they had to accept it because the, the economic system was so much better. It was very strictly uh, following the budget of Finland. Okay. So in 1993, we had another autonomy act and now we get a lump sum. That So it is not so strictly uh, uh, following the Finnish budget. But this we can go on for, because in this strict system, there was a possibility to negotiate and saying, well, this is an exception. Now, when we have a certain percentage, then you cannot negotiate. Okay, so you've lost so the, lab, the leverage. You say, you've so lost the leverage. Way, Sorry? You've lost the leverage. Yes, and I used to, uh, in one sentence, depict the economic system saying that in 1921, we had a lot of freedom, but no money. And now we have a lot of money, but no freedom. That's a bit exaggerated, but... Well, you can't, you can't win everything. And I think having money is important because money needs to... You can negotiate freedom, I believe. If you live yeah. in a democratic state, if you live in a democratic context. Yeah. But okay, of think course, it's... the Olanders are claiming that we are paying much, much more taxes to Finland than we get back. Of course, Finland is saying the opposite. Always. <laughs> They wouldn't agree. Well, it, you know, it depends on what you count. How we are not, we don't have uh, foreign, foreign uh, service. Uh, Okay. For example, foreign affairs is, doesn't belong to us. How much should we pay Finland for, etc., etc.? Well, that's a very big discussion because finances covers how much your education, your health care. Yeah, but that is part of our autonomy. We, You started with asking in what fields do we have autonomy? And they are very much the same in most autonomous Uh, home rule areas, regions, um, Faroe Islands, Greenland, etc. They have taxation, we don't have, etc. But the basic things like language, education, culture, these are very important uh, to uh, um, people in... Uh, this is an, it was labeled as an ethnic solution in 1921. We are a bit uh, careful with using the uh, word ethnic nowadays, mm. but that is what it was labeled. <laughs> and it was labeled a minority solution in 1921. And that is why there can be so strict uh, regulations. Yes. But this, I think we need to have another conversation about the, Absolutely. the money, because I think the money is. If you can make the money work, that yes. is often the key yeah. to trying to sell the idea to people. But yeah. I have to say, Elizabeth, I've learned a lot today. Very interesting finding out about Orland, which I have to say I didn't really know before I met you. So, so I'm happy we met. So I'm definitely happy we met beyond the fact that I found out about your area. Um But any chance you come to visit us, we can make this a conversation because we also didn't discuss the involvement of women, and that's another big conversation. But we, I think I like the idea of the regional 
autonomy. Yeah, the, you know that uh, the first UN SRSG to Cyprus was a Finn. Dak Hamaskan. No, Sakari Tuomioya. Okay. The father of the uh, former foreign minister in Finland, who I know very well, Erki Tuomioya. And I even arranged when I was member of the parliament, sort of memory seminar on Cyprus. And because uh, it was then, I think it was 100 years since Sakari Tuomioya was born. Okay. He died. He died on the post in Cyprus. That's that's interesting to know. So yes. there is a connection. Yes, anyway, definitely. I think we've got. I think we've opened up a door that we can have more conversations. As I said, I think we need to go back to the finance. But I think this autonomous region is a really interesting concept that, with good intent, can solve a lot of problems we see around us. But the key word is good intent. The key word is dialogue. Yes, but true dialogue. When I say good intent, it's got to be entering the conversation, hoping for a solution, not looking to find what I'm going to lose. And what is most more important than anything else is a consistent approach from the international community. And that is what you don't have, and even less now the international community is so divided right now. So divided. So divided. Okay, so maybe we, let's stop it here because anything else I say is going to open up another conversation. As I said, I'm very, this has been a lovely conversation. I've really learned a lot. Hopefully you can make it to Cyprus. Very glad I met you in Ethiopia. Yes, anything else? Too. And you never know, we might meet again. Absolutely. I'm sure we will. I'm sure we will. You Thank should you. come to the Orland Islands. I think I will. I've been as far as Norway. I've been to Norway once. Maybe I need to go further. Norway and Denmark. I've never been to Sweden or Finland. You know, just this is just a short jump from Stockholm. Mm. Okay. Let's see if we can make a plan. Yes. Thank you for the lovely conversation, Elizabeth. Thank you. Thank you. And to the listeners, thank you for listening. And stay safe. The first trilingual podcast station of Cyprus. Island Talks. Open. Diverse. Free.